Welcome to Mosaic Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church, Leeds, based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he, is, he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized you with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Great. Okay. Um... So many of you might know that I'm off to Dublin to plant a church in September. The leaving date is the 24th of September. My last Sunday is Sunday the 9th of September, and there'll be uh, a bring and share lunch that you are welcome to come to on that day. Um, But to get prepared for Dublin, I've had to write a CV because uh, I want to get a job, because I won't have a church that's going to fund me at all. So we are, I've got to the age of 30, I've had four jobs, and I've written my first CV, and this kind of annoys my family like mad, that I could get to 30 and have four jobs without ever having written a CV. Now a CV is, uh, it comes from, it means uh, curriculum vitae, and it means a course of life. So in in a CV you look at your course of life, what you've done, your character, your giftings, your qualifications, your education, and uh, then you write sort of a few headings and say, this is sort of who I am. I think it's on the next slide. And, uh, you know, this is who I am under a few headings. And in this uh, series uh, on the Holy Spirit, we're just taking a, a few headings to just say, who is he and what has he done and what does he do? And we're sort of doing a CV. Let's track the course of his life and describe what is his character who is he, and what does he do in the life of a believer? What are his gifts, so to speak? And uh, if I was to write a CV today for what I think people in church and in the world think about the Holy you know, if you had to get three headings, say, in your CV for the, the person and the work, the course of life of the Holy Spirit, I think these three titles might be given. The first one I might give him would be Forgotten. He might write on his CV, I've been forgotten by so much of the church. Um, that's the title of this series, Forgotten God. It's a great tragedy that throughout church history and in many times today, the church tries to live and operate without the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. The first thing I might write is he's a forgotten person, forgotten God. The second title I might use is confusing and controversial. 
You see, because we've often forgotten him and because we haven't paid attention to him and because we haven't taught clearly on who he is and what he does, there's a great amount of confusion in the church today about him. And that confusion then leads to controversy. Without doubt, from chatting to people in this church and through other, you know, many years chatting to other Christians, he is the most controversial member of the Trinity. God the Father, the first person of the Trinity... Okay, we sometimes struggle to relate to God as Father. But I get, he's the one I pray to. He's God. The one I talk, when I say God, I mean God the Father. And if we do struggle to relate to God the Father, it's actually the work of the Holy Spirit to help us to know our Father. Okay, the second person in the Trinity, God the Son. Jesus is fully man, fully God. Yeah, that is a bit confusing. But overall, I get him because he was on earth. We have records about him. And I can understand him. And if I don't understand him again, it says in John, the work of the Spirit is to lead us into all truth and to understand and reveal Jesus. But then there's the third person of the Trinity, God the Spirit. I mean, he's not the Father, he's not the Son. I mean, who is he? Is he the daughter? (laughs) Is he a force like in Star Wars? Is he a gas that sort of descends randomly? Is he a person? Is he an it? Is it it when we talk about the Spirit or... Do we talk about a person? Is he here? God the Father in heaven, on the throne. God the Son, sitting at his right hand, ascended. God the Spirit, now where is he? Is he on me? Where where, where is he? And and what does it mean to invite more of the Holy? He's a person. How do I invite more of him into my life and welcome him? And what do these phrases mean? He's omnipresent. I mean, how do I have more of him? And my favorite phrase is today, totally unbiblical, I think. (laughs) Press into the Holy Spirit. Soak in the Holy Spirit. I mean, what what do these words mean? We use them the whole time. People use them. So confusing and controversial. And then there's the issue of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. When are you baptized? Like conversion or is it a second experience? And do I feel insecure that I haven't been baptized? And then there's speaking in tongues and prophecy and signs and wonders. And, and what does it feel like to be baptized in the Spirit? And I see people shake and fall over. That's never happened. Why do they do that? And why doesn't it happen to me? And is it fake? And oh, confusing and controversial. And the conf- questions, the confusion, and the controversy often creates two groups. There's one group that get all a bit like, no. We don't want anything to do with this. We don't like experience. We don't like power. We need truth. We've got the truth, historical truth. That's what matters. The true mark of a Christian is whether you've got the truth. And they often suppress or forget and they get nervous or scared about any sense of power and experience and feeling. And then there's another group of people, maybe in reaction. Often these two groups react against one another and say, no, the true mark of a Christian is not about whether you know the truth or whether you've got the experience. The true mark is subjective. Is there power in your life and do you feel it? And it's a great tragedy because then there's confusion and people are nervous. And the point of this series is to bring some clarity and confidence in the person and the work of the Spirit and, in ch- and, and challenge us all about wherever we might sit or not sit and encourage us all and most of all empower us all to live in the good of the truth and the person of the Holy Spirit. 
We must never separate truth and experience. He is the spirit of truth, Jesus says. He leads us into truth and we worship in spirit and in truth. There should never be two camps. We should believe the truth and then experience the good of that truth. A phrase that I've come across that kind of captures this is, we should not so much theologize our experience, but experience our theology. I wouldn't want to get dogmatic about it. There's times when we do have a new experience and we try and work it out. But on the whole, who is he? What does he do? I want to believe that and then start to experience that. Experience our theology, not theologize our experience. Now, forgotten, confusing and controversial, but the third title I definitely give him is powerful. Whatever you think of him, whatever you feel you have or haven't experienced of him, no matter what the questions, the controversy, the confusion, no matter what group or whatever you might or might not want to put yourself in, there can be no doubt about his power. And it's one of the primary words, if not the primary word, that Jesus uses about him. Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to send another just like me. And he says, when you receive the Spirit, you receive power. Acts chapter 1, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, who of us doesn't want power? If you have power, you can change. And again, who of us doesn't want change? So turn to the person next to you and there's two questions. What do we often want power for in general in the world? And where would you like to see power to change on a personal level? One minute, you haven't got long. Pick one of them or pick both of them. Turn to the person next to you. Power. Okay, let's have, uh, let's have um, we're going to have one answer from every, we've got five sections, so just someone shout out, what do we want power for? Anything, someone shout it out. Control. control, and you could say self-control, because that's a fruit of the Spirit as well, yeah? One person from this column, anyone? Respect, great. This one? Influence, we'd love power to influence, make a difference. Yeah, this one? Change. Change in us, in the world. Yeah. They've all been said. Back to them, what would you like to change for? To be efficient. I thought you said a good footballer. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry. To be efficient. We want change in ourselves. I remember hearing um, this quote by Leo Tolstoy, who was a great author who said this, everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks 
of changing himself. If I was to summarize what power the Spirit gives us from the whole of the Bible, from every single thing, what is a summary of the power of the Spirit? It would be this. Power to change us internally that would enable us to have a power to change the world sort of external to us. To change our lives, or to put it biblically, power for holiness. Change me inside out. I want this self-control. I want, I want to be changed internally. And power to bring change outside, change the world. Power for mission. To change me from the inside out. The life, that the life and the power and the character of Christ might be formed in me. And that as that life and power and, and beauty is formed in me by the power of the Holy Spirit, I might then go and make a difference. And as Jesus says, be a witness to that life and his person to the ends of the earth. And be part of bringing his kingdom on earth. Starting where I am, Jerusalem, and going all the way out to the ends of the earth. That the kingdom of God might spread over the whole world through the power of the local church. Until one day... The earth will be covered with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Power for holiness internally. Power for mission to make a difference for Jesus and to share his name with everyone. I hope you desire that kind of power in your life. And in our life, we make often the filling and the power of the Spirit a personal thing. When in the New Testament, it's very often a corporate thing. Let me put it like this. Have you ever wanted to live for God but felt unable to avoid that sin, to love that person that annoys you, to think less about yourself or more about others, to not get anxious and fearful in the face of pressures and change? It's most likely that if you're failing, you're trying to live the Christian life in your own strength and not in the power of the Holy Spirit, asking him to sustain you, empower you, and enable you to live for God. <clears throat> and have you ever wanted to witness for Jesus, to make him known, but you lack a confidence and an assurance in yourself, and you find that in your actions and your words, you regularly disown him because of social pressure? Well, my contention is that you're probably not allowing the Holy Spirit, first of all, to change you, to overcome your insecurities and idolatry, and second of all, to give you a great power to stand in the face of social pressure and to witness to the name of Jesus. John Stott says in his book of and his commentary on Acts, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruits, and no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. The spirit is a spirit of power, power to make us holy, power to change us from the inside out, and power to send us out and be missionaries in Leeds and beyond. Now, if there was ever a story in the Old Testament that demonstrated the power of the Holy Spirit to first change someone and then through that changed life to bring great change in the world, it'd be the story of Gideon, a favorite child story found in Judges chapter 6 to 8. This is how the story goes. Next slide, please. God's people, the Mid-Israelites, were oppressed by the enemies, the, Midi- uh, the Midianites. So they're forced, the Israelites, into caves and clefts in the mountains. 
And God's people are totally impoverished. And so God's people cry out for help. So often, isn't it, when we come to an end of ourselves and we're impoverished, we then cry out from strength from above. Well, God's people cry out to God and the Lord comes to Gideon. And the Lord says to him, the Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. And he says to him, go in the strength you have and save Israel. Am I not sending you? Now, Gideon is a pathetic man. Like the rest of God's people, he's hiding And he does not exhibit any great faith in God. And very much like Moses in the book of Exodus, he comes up with numerous excuses why he should be disqualified from being used by God. He's from the weakest clan. He's the least in his family, and so the excuses go. He feels insecure. He feels insignificant. And God says, but I'm with you. I'll empower you. But he doubts God. And he asks for a sign. And there's a number of strange stories about a fire from heaven and the fleece, and it's all expressing Gideon's doubt, not his faith. But God is gracious to him, and through the signs, helps him overcome his insecurities, his doubts, and his fear of pleasing his father, how that cripples people still today. And what happens? What is the decisive moment in the story? Judges 6.34, then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abizarites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet him. He becomes, by the power of the Spirit, a mighty leader and a warrior he gathers 3, 000, uh, sorry, 32,000 men. And they come to him and they rally to him. He's been transformed. He's a leader now. He says, we're going to go. And we're going to win the battle for the Lord. And we're going to defeat the Midianites and the Amalekites. All the doubts, all the fears have been overcome through the power of the Spirit in his life. Gideon is ready, ready to be victorious for God. And then God puts the brakes on. Earlier it had been Gideon who said, no, 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 I've got some doubt. And God says, no, I want to now put the brakes on. Chapter 7, verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into your hands. Listen, in order that Israel may not boast against me uh, that their own strength has saved her. So God says to Gideon, look, I want this to, I really want this to be seen that it's my power that does this. So he says, Tell the 32,000, if any of you are scared, go home. And 22,000 leave. Oh, great. And they all go home. And, he's, and God says, 10,000, that's too many. Take them down to the water. You know that famous qualification for a warrior? <laughs> Where you say, depending on how you drink, and whether you get on your knees and lap it like a normal human being, or whether you get down and sort of suck it up with your tongue like a dog, well, depending on whether you'll qualify as a warrior in God's army. And so most of them, being human beings, do the kneeling and human thing. 300 of them do the dog thing. And God says, right, that's the qualification. 300 of you will go into battle. And they go into battle against all these two major enemies. And they win. And, and there's this great confusion that comes on the enemies of God. And there's blowing of trumpets and breaking of jars in the middle of the night. What is the point of the story? I think it could be summed up. Not in the book of... Uh, you see it clearly in the book of Judges. But there's a phrase in the, in, in the book of Zechariah that I think sums it up. It goes like this. Zechariah 4 verse 6. So he said to me, 
This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, another leader. Not by might, nor by power, human power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. God chooses a weak man. He makes sure the army is weak. But when he anoints, fills, and empowers with his Holy Spirit, then God uses them in remarkable ways. And one of the reasons he does this is so that we can never boast that we did anything. It was all his power at work within us. When the Spirit comes upon our life, it changes them. I overcome insecurities, doubts, fears. God changes me. does something in me. The life of Christ starts to be formed. And then I get to do something with that. To the extent that I've been changed by the Spirit is to the extent that I bring change in the world. But you see, there's a problem. You could argue it's the greatest problem in the Old Testament. What happened to Gideon was not the normal experience of the Israelites. They were not spirit-filled believers. In the Old Testament, we read about certain people like Gideon being empowered by the Spirit, but not everyone. But the prophets, they spoke of a day that was going to come. A day when what Gideon experienced would be what everyone would experience who trusted in the Lord. Ezekiel speaking maybe 600 years before Christ. The people are oppressed again. Like in Gideon's day, they're oppressed by the enemy. They're in Babylon. And God says, I'm going to do something dramatic. And this is how he words it, Ezekiel 36. For I will take you out of the nations of Babylon. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Do you notice the day that is coming that Ezekiel talks about is marked by two things. The first thing is forgiveness. There's water. There's washing. There's a cleansing. He's talking about the cross of Christ. There's a day coming when God will cleanse his people and remove idolatry and sin and give them a totally clean slate. And the second thing is you're going to get a new heart. Your stubborn, stony heart is going to be melted by the power of the Spirit. And not just your heart change, you're going to have a power within you. So you're going to be moved. Something's going to move you. Someone is going to move you so you can actually obey God and avoid sin. That's the day of Pentecost. The cross was the day when forgiveness was offered. The day of the Pentecost was the day when the church of God was baptized, immersed in the power of the Spirit. Jesus' death and resurrection would accomplish everything that was needed. It would do the groundwork, so to speak. Forgiveness, a new start, a new relationship. But the Holy Spirit would take the work of Christ and apply it to our hearts. He would make it real. He would make it powerful. He'd make it effective. It's not that I know that I'm forgiven by God. It's that I experience the joy of being forgiven and leave my past behind. Do you see the difference? Jesus forgives my sin. The Holy Spirit enables that to be a thing I rejoice in and live in the good of. And I'm no longer bound by my past. 
Jesus does the work, the Spirit applies it to our lives. Forgiveness, cleansing. New life. To live for God, to say no to sin, to stand up for God when social pressure makes us, wants to make us into cowards. When the day of Pentecost came, Jesus said, John the Baptist, baptize with water. I'm going to baptize you. I'm going to immerse you. I'm going to flood you. I'm going to just totally overwhelm you with the power of the Holy Spirit. And Peter, in the sermon, as the crowds responded to all these speaking in tongues and confusion, and they said they're drunk. Peter said, we're not drunk. God is at work in us. And then what's the, they, they then go, what must we do to be saved? Acts chapter 2, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for two things. For the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Do you see the two things? There's forgiveness of sin. There's a cleansing. Ezekiel talked about that. And there's a new power, a new, uh, a new life within us. The very presence of God by his spirit. And what a day. I mean, we think about Calvary and we should. We remember Good Friday and we should. We remember Easter Sunday, the resurrection. And we should. They were decisive days in all of history. I mean, just maybe the most important three days in all of history. But the day of Pentecost, what a day. It was, I mean, everything changed after that for God's people. For years, thousands of years, they'd never had this kind of power. A day comes and it all changes. They were cowards in fear in the upper room, terrified of what the authorities might do to them. After the day of Pentecost, they were confident evangelists rejoicing in suffering for Christ. They were 120 believers all gathered together shaking into thousands that spread from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And at the end of the book of Acts, Paul is in Rome witnessing. They're a small Jewish sect in Jerusalem and they become a radical movement that to this day is still growing. The kingdom of God is still expanding and one day the glory of God will cover the whole earth when he totally returns and the fullness of his presence is known once and for all. The spirit is the spirit of power and I I desire so much that we'd recapture afresh the power to change me, to change you, to change us and the power to send us out to make a difference for Jesus that all he's done, we might really stand up for and believe. Not just sing about here, but speak about it when it's hard. John Stott puts it like this, and I quote, I paraphrase. Live in the book of Acts. I exhort you. It is a tonic, the greatest tonic I know of in the realm of the spirit. Let's seek to recapture something of the confidence, enthusiasm, vision, and power of the early church. One thing is certain. Christ's church had been overwhelmed by the Spirit who thrust it out to mission. I hope you long for a fresh touch of the Holy Spirit upon us and upon you. And not just Mosaic, upon the church in the West, which is cowering in an upper room, while the church in the persecuted world stands tall and puts us to shame. How does this empowering come? And this is where it gets controversial. How is one filled? How do you receive? What is the baptism 
of the Holy Spirit. Well, I think there's three types of filling that the New Testament talks about. And there's lots of words that are used throughout the Bible, and they're all synonymous. Empowering, anointing, baptizing, filling, receiving, the Spirit being poured out. They're all capturing the same thing. And I think there's three types of filling. The first one is at conversion, and the theological word for that is regeneration. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again of water and the Spirit. He's quoting Ezekiel in John chapter 3. He says you can't even see the kingdom of God, let alone enter it, if the Spirit hasn't done a work in you already. And so to become a believer is for the Spirit to already have done a mighty work and filled you and regenerated you, giving you new life and new birth. If you're a Christian here today, don't panic. You have been filled with the Spirit. You wouldn't be a Christian without him already doing something in your life. Paul says to the church in Rome, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. The New Testament is absolutely 100% crystal clear. You cannot be a Christian and not be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian here today, rejoice in the fact that the Spirit has filled your life and transformed you and given you new birth a new start most of our problems come because we either don't recognize it we don't believe it or we don't walk in the good of this power the first type of filling the new testament talks about is when you're converted if you're not a christian here today you might want to stand up today and say i'd never seen the kingdom of god but on mosaic at mosaic church service this morning something happened my eyes are opened And suddenly these songs that I'd often sung, oh my life, (laughs) the Spirit gave you a new birth. You can become a Christian. You you have become a Christian. Let's receive it. Let's baptize you as soon as possible. The second type of filling the New Testament talks about is a continual and a gradual. And the theological word for that is sanctification. And it comes through the means of God's grace given to us. Let me unpack this again. Once you're born again, once you've received the Spirit... You then grow in the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. And I tell you this, this is the most important thing you need to get hold of if you're you're a bit nervous about the work of the Spirit. This work of the Spirit is unseen, is gradual, and nearly all the time is very unspectacular. But it produces in the long run a great fruit in your life. There's a continual filling. And the life of Christ is formed in you and you grow in boldness to stand tall for him. Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now the phrase, be filled, next slide please, with the Holy Spirit. There's two things you need to know about this. First of all, it's corporate. It's not to me as an individual. It's to us as a church or the church in Ephesus. Obviously, I receive part of that as an individual in the church, but it's a command not for me individually, but us as a church. And the second thing is it's continuous present tense, which means I continually seek, we continually seek the filling and the empowering and the refreshment of the Holy Spirit. We continually seek together a greater intimacy with God, boldness from God, and refreshment by and through the
the Holy Spirit. If you what does filling mean? Think empowerment, a fresh empowerment, a fresh intimacy. And so the question comes, well, what are the tools? What are the theological term means of grace? Ways that God does actually then fill us. Well, the book of Ephesians gives us four main ways, I think, that we're to grow in holiness and to grow in boldness for mission. You see, the book of Ephesians, one of its primary themes is that we're filled to the fullness of God. And in chapter 1, he mentions that. In chapter 2, Paul says, we together are the dwelling place of God where he dwells by his Holy Spirit. This theme of being filled with the fullness of God has already come up in Ephesians. And so how does this filling come? How do we together grow and become a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. Well, look what it says in Ephesians 5. The first thing, I think, is delighting and meditating on the truth. Listen. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. The first thing he says after the command to be filled is, how do you get filled? Well, we need to speak to one another. And then he talks about rather odd things. You speak in psalms and hymns. And then you sing and make music. What's he talking about? He says... In chapter 4, he said the way you grow up in God is you grow in truth. And you put off, there's a new attitude of mind. He talks in depth. You read chapter 4, there's in depth. And then he says, but that truth so needs to rejoice your heart that you end up singing. And as you sing on the truth and as you delight about the truth, the Spirit fills you. The Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible. All Scripture is God-breathed, inspired by the Holy Spirit, 1 Timothy Three, if you want to be full of the Spirit, be full of His words. We grow and are filled with the Spirit as we grow and are filled with the truth of Scripture. But it's not just knowing the truth. The Spirit takes it and so we end up wanting to sing in the good of the truth to one another. And we sing and make music in our hearts to the Lord. So it's both... The way the Spirit fills us and then the outcome of what happens when we are filled. So why do we spend most of our time on Sundays singing and listening to God's Word taught? Because it's maybe the main means by which the Spirit fills us. Personally, the way I receive a fresh power from the Holy Spirit is through regular study and meditation on God's Word and through good preaching that I hear and listen to. And as I've grown and been filled with the Spirit, a hunger for the Scriptures has increased. The second thing the book of Ephesians says is fellowship. That's the second means of grace and unity. You see, it says you speak to one another. You have to do truth to one another. And then he says you have to submit. That's where people miss out the stuff that follows after that becomes a bit hard. You have to submit to one another. It's a corporate thing. It's through fellowship. Again, uh, in chapter 2, Paul argues that as you're built together, the Spirit comes. So it's through fellowship and unity. That's why at Mosaic we put such a strong emphasis on mission groups and accountability groups. That's a place where you're vulnerable. That's a place where people will challenge you and speak truth to you. And I've known times in my life when I've been vulnerable with another brother, or they've challenged me, or I've just been able to share my struggles or whatever, and and, and it's been vulnerable and intimate, and I tell you, the fresh touch of the Spirit, when, you, when that happens, and you sense Him filling you and empowering you and strengthening you, because you've, you've shared. And he's a, he's, it's a means of grace. He's used that to refresh you again. 
Leanne and I had Matt and Pip over for, for dinner on, on Friday. And we shared, and there was honesty. And you come awake, I just feel refreshed in the Holy Spirit. All we did was eat and listen to Matt drone on. But, you know. <laughs> um, delighting in truth, fellowship and unity. The third thing is prayer. Listen to these two prayers. I'm not going to say much about them. Just listen to them. Chapter 3. I pray, Paul says, that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ might dwell in your heart, that the character of Christ might be formed in you through faith. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. We pray for one another. Because God uses our prayers and answers our prayers and hears our prayers and the Spirit takes our prayers and then the fullness of God is formed in us. Chapter 6, this is one of the most wonderfully reassuring uh, verses in the whole of Ephesians because you see the weakness of the Apostle Paul, which is wonderful. Pray in the Spirit. So let the Spirit empower your prayers. That might mean speaking in tongues. I don't think it's a specific reference to tongues. I think it says, let the Spirit empower your prayers. On all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Paul then says, pray for me. That whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Do you remember Jesus said to the disciples in Luke chapter 12, don't fear. When you get thrown up before authorities, the Spirit will give you words. And Paul says, please pray for me. I'm always up before authorities trying to witness for Jesus. And I'm fearful. The Apostle Paul was fearful of witnessing. And he needed the power of the Spirit and the words given by the Spirit. Pray for one another. Pray for me that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly. Why do we pray for one another? Why do we lay hands on one another? Why do I lay hands on Sam and pray for him as he goes? Because the Bible says lay hands on one another and pray for one another because we need a filling and a strengthening to be fearless. And so when you go, I'm so nervous, I'm going into this context in my sports team, my work, my house, my pray for one another that you might be able to declare the gospel fearlessly. Now let me just t- take a moment to talk about the laying on of hands and a few other physical things. Laying on of hands doesn't have anything special in and of itself. But it signifies great solidarity. And what we do with our bodies helps us receive from God. Whether you bow on your knees to pray, to pray, to go, I'm humbly coming before you. I want humility. When you bow, there's nothing special. You can be a hypocrite on your knees. But it can enable you to grow in humility before Almighty God. Putting your hands in the air as you sing. It's nothing special. It doesn't make you a better Christian, anything. But the Bible says, lift up your hands to sing. Because as we do it, we say, I'm lifting up my heart. I'm focusing. So it's not necessary. It's not special. It doesn't signify anything. But the Bible says, what you do with your body often helps you worship, receive, pray, sing, learn. Closing your eyes. It helps you concentrate. It's simple. And you can concentrate on truth and you can think about God. Laying hands on one another, it expresses solidarity and a sense of ascending and a sense of um, a moment where we lay hands and say, yes, we're equipping you for this task. 
What we do with our bodies often helps us. So can I encourage you? Do you need to express yourself more physically to help you engage with the work of the Spirit in your life? The fourth thing is obedience. The question is not whether you have all of the Spirit, but whether the Spirit has all of you. You see, before Ephesians 5.18, the command to be filled, it's all about walking in the light. Walk in the light and Christ will shine on you. Put on purity and holiness. In chapter 4, take off all the things of the old nature. Chapter 4, put on all the things of the new nature. Be transformed in the, in the renewing of your mind. Walk in holiness and obedience. And again, that is why we stress such an emphasis here at Mosaic on confessing sin. Some people say, why do we have such an emphasis on confessing our sin to one another? Well, the Bible tells us to do it, Galatians 6. But the reason we do it is because I want to walk in obedience. And if I'm hiding this... I cannot be walking in the light. And as I come and present it to you, someone I trust, then I'm bringing it to the light to be transformed in the light. That's why we tend to spend time trying to locate our idols, you know, the false gods in our lives. What am I trusting in? No, help me. Can you help me? Let's work together. What lies am I believing and what truth? If you, discipleship and being filled by the Spirit is like that. Obedience and being filled by the Spirit are like this. Don't expect to be empowered by the Spirit if you're not willing to give Him your whole life. Submit every... I mean, if, if you haven't surrendered everything, if there's nothing in your life... We make mistakes. We continue to sin. We need, but if it's, I'm not giving you this, God. Well, why do we think we walk in weakness? You have to surrender. You've got all of me. And as we surrender, He says, Great, let me empower you for holiness and for mission. Ephesians 4 verse 30 says we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Why? Read the context of the passage through sinful behavior, gossiping, gossiping, and factions in the church. We grieve him. He's not going to empower us with a bunch of gossips. Walk in the light. If you need to deal with someone's sin against you, deal with it. Don't gossip about it. Go to them. You sinned against me. Can we talk about it? Someone did that to me this morning. It was wonderful. It was Wonderful. The Spirit empowering us to live in holiness together. Personally, there's moments in my life when I know I've stopped. It could be doing some worship, it preach in my own when I'm walking. And I've said to God again, God, you've got all of me. And there's a fresh touch of the Spirit again. He says, great. Now I can empower you. Maybe you need to do that again today. Has the Spirit got all of you? So three fillings, conversion, regeneration, continual and gradual. And then tragically, the one that we so often focus on, moments of great power and intimacy. I say tragically, not because they're not wonderful and worth wanting, but we forget the first two are the norm in the Christian life. And there's always a sense of special equipping that comes. Sometimes in God's sovereignty, he takes number two and does something dramatic and wonderful. And a church might go through a season of life where he continually does something wonderful. But it's up to him. And you know what? There's nearly always two marks, certainly in the New Testament. There's a greater intimacy that God gives his church. And there's this greater power for change and witness. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. I mean, this place has never shaken. I mean, I, I wouldn't want it to shake. Right? <laughs> After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were f- all filled with the Holy Spirit. And just to enjoy it, yeah, there was an enjoyment, sure. But to speak the word of God 
boldly in a world that is hostile to God. Any greater moments of power and intimacy are never just to be enjoyed. Enjoy them, yes, but the point is to speak the word of God boldly. And people who go, oh, I'm such a wonderful moment with God, and then disown him a minute later, I think, what was God doing in that moment? What was he doing? Because if it really was of God, then it would have led to something. You've always looked for the fruit, not the experience. And let's pray for moments of power and intimacy. Let's long for them. But don't seek them and don't seek an experience above seeking God himself. And then God chooses what he does and when he does it. That is not the norm in in Acts of the Apostles. You don't read it always happening. Sometimes it's normal prayer and they just crack on. And sometimes things like that happen. Notice though, means of grace. They're praying. There is a moment of great power. The result is witnessing and speaking God's word. But they weren't seeking the experience. They were seeking God. Put yourself in a place where you can receive, but don't get preoccupied with the experience. Get preoccupied with knowing God. Let me just speak personally to end about these three fillings in my own life. At 12, I was converted. I'd grown up in a Christian home. I'd known the truths of the gospel. I'd been introduced to the person of Christ wonderfully by my parents. At 12, I was singing a song in a kid's camp, Abba Father, I want you to know I'm yours and yours alone. And Romans chapter 5 says, The Spirit of God shed abroad the love of the Father in my heart. And I was converted. I saw the kingdom and I wanted to be a part of it. And I, it was a new life. I had a new commitment, a new desire. Things changed in me at 12. And uh, that was my moment when I was born again. I was different from that moment on. I'd been baptized. I'd been drenched in the Spirit of God so I could know my Father. Then there was a continual and a gradual one. There's two things I want to talk about. The first one, when I was 16, when I was 16, I moved from a, uh, my grammar school into a sixth form college called Cadbury College, which is the greatest name for a college. There's no chocolate, but it's called Cadbury College. And uh, in that moment, I had a fresh start, you see, because no one... Uh, I'd grown up for... You know, when you're 12 to, uh, 11 to 16, are so formative, aren't they, in your life, Right? And people have expectations of you. And you think you have to live a certain way because I was one of the sporty ones. And And so I'd never really been bold for Jesus. Because at 11, I got converted at 12. And so there was a year there. And then I never left behind. And and at 16, I moved to a sixth form college. And I said to God, no one knows me. I want to be available for you in a new way. I I said, I don't care what people think. Here's a moment. God's given me a moment of breaking. And I said, I'm going to take it. God, I want a new start. I want to, I'm, I'm available in a way that I haven't said before. And if people don't like me for being a Christian, well, so what? And I prayed for boldness to witness. And you know what? Nothing happened. I just turned up to college on the first day. But I tell you, this dramatic thing happened in my life. I started to speak about Jesus. And I started to not care if people liked me or not. And most of the time, they didn't really care about what I thought. And so there was a fresh availability and submission at 16. It was a gradual thing. Nothing spectacular happened. And then we're 18 years old. I had a year out in Ecuador and ever since then, it's probably the first time in my, and ever since, I put the regular disciplines or means of grace in my life. Of Bible, prayer, fellowship, and longing to be obedient and bringing things into the light. And from 18 to 30, that's how old I am now, I would say, and people would testify who know me sort of more objectively in my family things, it's been a gradual, slow unseen 
unspectacular growth. I'm not wonderful, I'm just saying. That's how it's worked. Conversion at 12, a gradual thing through a greater moment of availability and the means of grace and the boldness that's come. And there has been moments of great power and intimacy for a special equipping. At 15 years old, I went to share in front of the church uh, just what God had done on this weekend away. And as I was sharing, I couldn't believe it. Uh, the Spirit just came upon me, and I started to weep and started to share. And it had a great impact on the whole church. And after that, my life did change again. And God had done something in me, a deep work in me. And I've shared this story quite a few times. The reason you could tell was not from the experience, but my dad would say, I started to do the washing up. (laughs) You mark the work of the Spirit in your life, not by the experience, but by the fruit. And he said, at 15, you started to wash up in the home before you'd never bothered to offer. And I started to be considerate and nice towards my mother, who I'd taken for granted for so many years. Let me share another one. Two years ago, I was at a conference where Terry Virgo was speaking, and he was speaking from Ephesians 6, actually, on the hope of heaven. And it was a wonderful sermon. I put it on my iPod, and uh, I remember listening. I got to the end of that sermon, and he invited us to pray and stand, and we're in this massive auditorium, three, four, five thousand people, I don't know. And I just closed my eyes, and as he was praying, I just allowed God, and I just started weeping. I mean, there's thousands of people there. I could have been the only person. It was just me and Jesus. There's a moment of intimacy. I was weeping. And the hope of heaven, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I thought, thank you, Holy Spirit, that this is so real to me now. It's as if it's just me and Jesus, even though there's thousands. Now, that's not all the time. I'm just saying there are moments of intimacy and power, and it's normally to equip us for, uh, for, 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 for outside of that experience, so to speak. Where do we go from here? If you're not a Christian here today, as we've sung the songs... As the prophetic words came, as the word of God has been taught, maybe the Spirit this morning has given you new birth. Come forward, let's pray for you, and at the next available opportunity, we'd love to baptize you. He's done a work in you. Rejoice in it. Don't resist him. Come forward. He loves you so much, and he wants you, and that's why he's opened your eyes this morning. Come forward and speak to him at the end. Repent, believe, and be baptized, and you will will receive what about the normal growth well maybe you know this things god has been highlighting are there means of grace bible prayer fellowship obedience confessing you need to put in your life is there a new level of god i'm available i'm surrendering have i got all of the spirit well i'm going to give you all of me so to speak say to him again lord use me lord fill me lord you've got all of me and put the means of grace in your life. What about the moments of great power and intimacy? You know what, I do long for them, personally. You know what, I do long for them as a church. But let's not seek the experience, let's seek an empowerment for mission. And let's pray that fire would fall from heaven, on us and on the church in the West, to empower us to be his witnesses, right where we are, and to the ends of the earth. Amen? Let's stand together, I'll pray.